Servants of Mary, born on October the 12th, 1916, in Superior, Wisconsin, was ordained in 1941 at Our Lady of Sorrows Basilica in Chicago. In 1930, he entered into the Servite Seminary in Hillside, Illinois. He studied theology philosophy and music at Loyola and DePaul University in Chicago. His background also includes the University of Sacred Music in Rome, and he also has a master's degree from St. Louis University, St. Louis, Missouri. Father Rookie assisted the famous Chicago Servite, Father James M. Keene, to found Our Lady of Bemberg College in Northern Ireland. News spread rapidly of the tremendous blessings, healings, and gifts received by people there, and the college has since become a renowned center for healings and peace. Father Rookie directed Bemberg for three years. In 1953, Father Rookie was elected to the office of Assistant General of the Servite Order, which placed him in Rome. His office allowed him to do extensive traveling in Belgium, Ireland, Lapland, Africa and the Middle East. He speaks seven languages. From 1959 to 1961, he directed the Servite International College at Louvain University, which was founded in the 13th century, where Father Damien de Leper is entombed. He ministers far and near, over the telephone and through letters. His compassion and healing ministry brings him frequent invitations to personally visit churches throughout the United States, Europe, and Ireland. He has been on the cover of Extension Magazine and has been featured many newspaper articles, witnessing to God's power through prayer. He is the author of The Shepherd of Souls, The Life of St. Anthony Pucci. Father Rookie has been honored by His Holiness, the Pope, who designated him Knight of the Holy Sepulchre. 
Father Peter uses in blessing people during his healing services contains relics of the Servite saints, St. Peregrine, St. Anthony Pucci, St. Juliana, St. Philip Venezia, and the seven holy founders of the Servite Order. He has brought the gift of God's love to countless thousands through the healing touch of Jesus. Blessed Mother is appearing in every part of the globe. It seems that of old, God sent his prophets, as Paul says, but lately he has sent his only son. Now, in our times, he is sending his mother. She is appearing <clears throat> from Lourdes, Fatima, Nock, Sinsakova, Poland, Italy, Medjugorje, Yugoslavia, Ukraine, Lithuania, behind the Iron Curtain, Akito, Japan, Kibeho, Rwanda, in Africa. Nicaragua. You name it. Our Lady is coming to tell us of the love of the Father and of her son's mission. The basic gospel message. In the year 1233, she appeared to seven young men in Florence, Italy, since known as the seven founders of the Servite Order, or Order of Servants of Mary. And she appeared to them because they were so devoted to her in a sodality called the Praisers of Mary in Florence. They met at a place now occupied by the bell tower of the famous cathedral of Florence. I asked them to come apart, to pray, to do penance. They lived in a terrible time for church and state, a time of division between the adherents of the Pope of the time and the emperor of the time, Frederick. 
very sharp civil war was taking place and they were roughly divided in two the seven young men between adherents of the Pope and adherents of the Emperor in this atmosphere the Servites came into being their vocation as servants of Mary was to live the gospel in communion with brothers and sisters wherever they would go in the world to be at the service of God and his people under the guidance of Mary, the mother and servant of the Lord. <clears throat> Numerous religious families and lay associations gathered around this ideal of evangelic, evangelical and apostolic life. They share this in a way that is common to all, and they express this charism in a diversity of ways of life, contemplative, active, and secular. Along with us, these brothers and sisters make up the great Servite family of brothers and sisters, united in a deep communion of faith and love, supported by spiritual and apostolic cooperation, committed in joyful, self-giving, sharing, mutual concern, filial love of the Blessed Virgin Mary. There are many members of this family. <clears throat> While remaining in your own families and in your own social and professional surroundings, you may wish to live out the quest for holiness to which you are called in common with all the baptized, according to the principles of the life of the gospel set forth in our rule of life. This rule and the statutes designed to guide your present and future communities enshrine the values of our Marian and spirituality of the servants of Mary. <clears throat> in 1982, a rule of life, a now tailored to our present times and needs was finally approved in Rome on the Feast of the Holy Family, December 26th, 1982. <clears throat> what is the history of these who adhere to our Blessed Lady in a special way as her servants? Well, from the very earliest days of the order, the servants of Mary, various individuals and groups of lay people gathered around the communities of friars to share their life and spirituality. Perhaps the best known of these was Henry of Baldovino, who became an oblate at the Servite Church of St. Mary of, of the Servants in Florence in 1265. The official beginning of the <clears throat> secular order of Servites can be said to be 1424, many, many years even before America was discovered by Columbus. 
1492. In 1424, Pope Martin V promulgated the first brief or bull which gave a precise series of norms for the secular order of Servites. And these norms formed the backbone of the rule of the Third Order until 1925. <clears throat> these groups were given various names over the course of history, the Company of the Servants of Mary, and sometimes called the Third Order. <clears throat> It should be remembered, however, that even if it was known by different names, company, society of the habit, and so on, it was clearly distinct from the various Servite confraternities, such as the Confraternity of Our Lady of Sorrows. Toward the end of the 19th century, the order began to recover after the suppressions it had undergone at the hands of anti-clerical governments, just as many of the other religious orders. Pope Leo XIII then published two rescripts which modified the ancient rule of Pope Martin V. <clears throat> In 1925, the rule was replaced by a newer one, approved by the Servite General Council. And in 1965, by the Sacred Congregation of Religious, this new rule then incorporates many of the needs of our finally of our modern age and helps us to follow the charism of the order in carrying out in our various apostolates and the various forms of life in which we find ourselves whether married business, uh, retired, uh, youth groups, whatever, by praying together, uh, carrying out the uh, meditating on the uh, sorrows of our Blessed Lady, and in praying the, the Rosary of the Seven Sorrows of Our Blessed Mother, making the Via Matris, or Way of Our Lady, the seven uh, steps or sorrows of her life, the major ones, that is. There were many more than the seven, of course. Uh, finding themselves reaching out, as Our Blessed Mother did, and uh, being sensitive to the needs of the communities in which they find themselves. Uh, what goes by as an unnoticed fact in the history of the church is that how many uh, religious orders uh, began as lay uh, groups. Uh, St. Benedict uh, was a layman. St. Francis, the founder of the Franciscan order, did not become a priest. And so many other orders began as 
orders of brothers or, of course, all sister orders and congregations uh, began as lay uh, groups and eventually uh, became uh, uh, recognized uh, by the bishop, the local bishop, and some of them by uh, the church itself. Uh, so, uh, uh, the Servites were started by seven laymen, and some of them did become priests, as uh, happened to uh, St. Ignatius Loyola, who was a layman, but uh, the Jesuits are certainly a clerical institute now. Uh, they most uh, have been, I think, you can say from the beginning. But many of the religious orders were uh, lay persons gathered together, uh, just as uh, you uh, uh, secular servites uh, would be doing. Uh, I'm uh, <coughs> uh, convinced that uh, many of us will be want to take vows, uh, just as. Uh, Many of the uh, secular servites over history have taken them. We can take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience according to our way of life. If we are married or living uh, in the world or whatever, we can take those vows according to the spirit of the vocation which we already have in life. And according to the permissions we may receive from our husband or wife. Uh, in more recent times, <clears throat> for example, we can also uh, get that permission as did uh, Catherine de Huac Doherty and her husband Eddie Doherty, who in their last years uh, uh, took the vow of, of chastity. They uh, decided that between themselves and uh, lived uh, as brother and sister, uh, even though they were married. <clears throat> and so uh, I'm going to uh, tell you in a moment uh, about some outstanding uh, uh, secular servites in the history of the order. Uh, first, I would just like to say, uh, when we are received into the order, we have a, a year of probation usually, and then a spiritual year of uh, novitiate, and then we are uh, uh, eligible to uh, uh, take our vows and, and the kind of vows that we are able to take. Uh, on that occasion, we receive the uh, officially the uh, Rosary of the Seven Sorrows, and the Servite Scapular. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, Scapular originated as a work garment in the very early days of religious life. It was hung over the religious habit of the monk uh, or friar, protecting both the front and back of the habit. In the early days, the uh, religious would take off his scapular when he went to chapel to pray. It was not included in the ceremony of clothing originally. <clears throat> in the course of time, its symbolic meaning was attached to the garment. 
and uh, was considered a kind of cross carried on the shoulder. The scapula then became a symbol of the religious's life of penance and lifelong conversion to the Lord. In the, by the end of the 11th century, the scapular had become a part of the habit of some religious orders, like the Benedictines. <clears throat> when the new mendicant orders were founded in the 13th century, the Franciscans and the Servites, uh, many of them adopted a scapular as part of their habit, <clears throat> the Dominicans. The Servites wore a black scapular, the Carmelites a brown scapular, and the Dominicans a white scapular. It was common in the 13th century for lay people to desire some experience of religious life to associate themselves with a nearby monastery or religious house, in our case a priory or friary, <clears throat> as the friars called their places. We Servites are friars, I say jokingly in the cannibal part of uh, the world where we have may have missions we are never boiled by the cannibals because we are friars that's a little smile this these lay people would try to practice the spirituality of that group of uh, monks or friars and would take vows that were compatible with their state of life it was customary for the religious uh, to bestow on the layperson a part of the religious habit, something to signify that habit. And the Servites usually invested lay associates with a full-length black scapular. The scapular consisted of two pieces of cloth, one of which was worn on the chest, the other on the back. The two were connected by strings or tapes over the wearer's shoulder. The beginning of the 16th century, a reduced form of the scapular came into use. The small scapular, as we know it today, was worn by lay servites or secular members who wanted to associate themselves uh, closely with the servites. <clears throat> uh, they wanted to associate themselves less closely uh, than those people who actually took vows but who did want to adopt the spirituality of the Servite order. So the small scapular continues today as a reminder of our obligation to carry the cross with Christ. It is also meant to encourage those who wear it to practice the charism of the, of the order. Fraternity, service, devotion to our mother, especially our mother of sorrows. It is by following in the way of Jesus and attempting to live the life of service to our brothers and sisters under the protection of Mary that the wearer of the scapular seeks his or her salvation. <clears throat> Although some traditions have grown up in the church about Our Lady granting special privilege privileges to those who wear the scapular, these privileges presuppose that the individual is living a good Marian and Christian life. So the scapular is an external sign of our dedication to live out the message of the gospel of Jesus and our blessed lady's life in our own time and place. I'm going to uh, give you some uh, thumbnail sketches of uh, some outstanding uh, secular servites 
from uh, earlier times and from our own times. Uh, I wrote the life of a famous uh, secular servite who became Pope Innocent XI in very uh, troublous times for the church and the world. Uh, the times when the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, was threatening to take over the whole of uh, Western, uh, the Christian Europe. And uh, uh, Innocent XI, uh, whose uh, family name was Odiskalki, uh, lived uh, just next door to uh, the Servite headquarters in Rome. Odiskalki Palace, as it's called, was uh, within arm's reach almost of uh, the window uh, where I lived, in the room where I lived in the uh, general headquarters for six years. And uh, he was uh, beatified by uh, Pope Pius XII, uh, and that was the occasion uh, for my writing uh, his life. Uh, he uh, attributed to our Blessed Lady the uh, victory over the Turks uh, and built a beautiful church to her right in the Roman Forum, which you can visit today. I often visited it myself. He was received into the, um, the secular uh, Servites uh, right in San Marcello, where I lived, which is right next door to his uh, family palace. He came from a very wealthy family. The Odiskalki were a very wealthy family. He is uh, laid out, incidentally, in a glass uh, under the first altar on the right in St. Peter's, just opposite Pius X on the other side of the, uh, uh, the church, or the basilica. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, he is laid out just next to the Pieta, the famous Pieta altar of uh, Michelangelo. <clears throat> Another uh, a great uh, uh, secular servite was Cardinal Mary del Val, uh, uh, who uh, was the Secretary of State to St. Pius X, uh, and who was buried in the, the crypt of St. Peter's by special permission, uh, right next to his uh, great uh, master and to whom he was so devoted, St. Pius X. <clears throat> he uh, uh, wrote, among other things, a beautiful litany of humility which I will uh, uh, eventually conclude these remarks. I would just like to uh, uh, speak of another uh, famous secular servite uh, uh, coming down to more to our own times, uh, Maria Valtorta. Uh, Maria Valtorta, as we uh, know, is uh, author of the famous poem of the man-god, the, uh, the original, original Italian, uh, ten-volume 
uh, work besides other uh, works that she wrote. Uh, but she is most famous for that and has been translated uh, into English. And uh, many of us, I'm sure, have perused this because it's uh, kind of bestseller in the whole world uh, right now in various languages. Uh, Maria Valtorta lived in Via Reggio. Maria Valtorta died, uh, incidentally, on uh, the uh, day I celebrate my birthday, October 12th in 1961. So she's a more recent uh, secular servite and uh, certainly is uh, becoming one of the most famous secular servites of our times. Uh, I promise to uh, give you a, a uh, a beautiful legacy of one of our secular servites that is uh, Cardinal Mary Delval who will possibly also be canonized someday just as his mentor was St. Pius X uh, and this is uh, his beautiful litany of humility of Mary, Cardinal Mary Dalval. If you wish to join me in praying this litany, you may do so. <clears throat> Litany of Humility. This is an all-embracing prayer. His Eminence Cardinal Mary Delval bears in a developmental, step-by-step -step fashion the embodiment, the totality of his conquest of self, of his entire spiritual life, revealing the secret sanctuary wherein he found the source of peace. He was accustomed to recite this litany after the celebration of Mass. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, From the desire of being loved. Preserve me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled. Preserve me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored. Preserve me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised. Preserve me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others. Preserve me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted. Preserve me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved. Preserve me, Jesus. From the fear 
of being humiliated. Preserve me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised. Preserve me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes. Preserve me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated. Preserve me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten. Preserve me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed. Preserve me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged. Preserve me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected. Preserve me, Jesus. That others be loved more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others be chosen and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others be praised and I unnoticed. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. bless you with her loving child Jesus. Many Catholics haven't even heard of a saint by the name of Peregrine, spelled P-E-R-E-G-R-I-N-E. -E. But since he is the patron of those who suffer from cancer, and AIDS and other very malignant diseases. His popularity has been growing very much. It touches this disease, cancer, three out of four families in the U.S. This saint of cancer is uh, also the namesake of a non-sectarian group in St. Louis, which calls itself the Peregrine Society. It does everything for those who suffer from cancer. If you go to their headquarters, in St. Louis, 
you are be surprised to see a larger than life statue of him inside the entrance. Showing his cancerous leg, which was healed the night before he was to have it amputated. He prayed before the crucifix, and somehow our Lord came to him and touched the wound and healed it. This man who became the patron of Italy at one time and also of Spain, in fact the Spaniards brought devotion to St. Peregrine over a good part of the world wherever they planted the faith and conquest to California and southwest United States to South America to the Philippines. was born in Forli, Italy, not too far from Assisi, in the year 1265. His family name sounds something like Lazarus, Laziosi. And so it's somewhat associated with a kind of cancer called leprosy. Lazarus was a leper, wasn't he? He was healed by the Lord and brought up to Abraham's bosom, according to the story our Lord tells. It was during a very severe and trying time in history of Italy and of the world, and Italy in particular, particular, that Peregrine, who was 18 years of age at that time, rose against uh, the Holy Father with many of his compatriots in Forlì. Pope Martin IV brought an interdict against his hometown, Forlì. <clears throat> the Pope sent another Servite, St. Philip Benizi, to preach peace. One of the angry rebel leaders who ran Philip out of town was Peregrine. Tradition says that he even struck St. Philip and was stunned when St. Philip turned the other cheek. In any case, we do know that Peregrine was touched by Philip's sanctity and 
He abandoned his way of life to spend hours kneeling in the chapel of our Blessed Mother in the cathedral there. He asked Philip's forgiveness for the rebels. and eventually became a Servite in the famed Siena, city of Siena, whom we know uh, from another great saint, Catherine. His life evinced a great love for the poor. His penance was we can only say medieval. One story maintains that as a penance he did not sit down for 30 years. What we do know that he often prayed 10 hours at a time while standing. This may have had something to do with his developing sores on his right leg. Doctors believed that amputation was his only resource. Uh, and the night before the operation, Peregrine dragged himself to the chapter room, which I have visited in Forley myself. And in the morning, his leg was completely restored. 20 years later, he was already being venerated as a saint. <clears throat> His incorrupt body lies beneath the side altar in the Basilica at Forley, the Basilica of St. Peregrine. His feast is celebrated on May the 4th. I hold in my hands his relic a piece of his holy body, which I have seen incorrupt in Forli, in his shrine in Basilica of St. Peregrine. May Our Lady bless you with her loving child, Jesus. to Saint Peregrine. As I pray this prayer, I hold in my hands his relic, a piece of his holy body, which I have seen incorrupt in Forli, in his shrine in Basilica of Saint Peregrine. you wish you may pray with me. O glorious wonder worker, Saint Peregrine, you who answered 
the divine call with a ready spirit, forsaking all the comforts of a life of ease and the empty honors of the world to dedicate yourself to God in the order of Christ's most holy mother, servants of Mary. You who labored for the salvation of souls, you who in union with Jesus crucified endured the most painful sufferings with such patience as to deserve to be healed miraculously by him with a touch of his divine hand from an incurable wound in your leg. Obtain for us, please, the grace to answer every call from God and kindle in our hearts a consuming zeal for the salvation of souls. Deliver us from the infirmities that so often afflict our weak bodies and give us the grace of perfect resignation to the sufferings which it shall please God to send us. So we may, by imitating your virtues and tenderly loving our crucified Christ and his sorrowing mother, merit glory everlasting in paradise. Amen and amen. The Order of Servants of Mary is a medieval order founded in 1233 by our Blessed Lady who appeared to seven young men in Florence, Italy. The seven young men belonged to a sodality of our Blessed Mother called the Praisers of Our Lady and they met in a little chapel of their own um, which is now the bell tower of the Cathedral of Florence. You can read a bronze plaque to that effect when you go to Florence, Italy. But uh, in the course of the uh, roughly seven and a hundred and fifty years since uh, the founding of the order. Uh, many saints have emerged, and I'd like to tell you some of the fruits of being a servant of Mary. Some of these saints who have uh, been canonized as a result of their living the life as servants. Marian life, we could say, because their whole endeavor is to imitate Mary, uh, who was the great servant of Jesus. And of course, 
we cannot become close to, uh, we cannot come close to Mary without becoming close or come close to Jesus and become like Jesus. She points to her son always, brings us to him with her motherly heart. I would like uh, first to mention uh, a young lady who was just canonized in uh, St. Peter's uh, on April the 9th, 1989, by Pope John Paul II. Uh, no definitive life in English has been written of, of her yet, and I am hoping uh, to soon come out with some, at least, short life of hers, some biography of hers. Uh, <clears throat> she was born in a little town called Le Boudrier, B-U-D-R-I-E, Le Boudrier, uh, which is a town near Bologna in Italy. On uh, February the 3rd, 1847, she was born in poverty. She never had a problem with her vow of poverty. And in 1868, she started a group to help abandoned girls to instruct them in the love of God, the love of Jesus and of our Blessed Mother. She began with a group of just three other young ladies in a very simple uh, room where she brought these abandoned girls each day to instruct them. She uh, wrote a short rule for them, for this little group, and uh, uh, she was uh, evidently uh, uh, very uh, so poor that she did not receive all the vitamins that uh, we in America especially are able to have, and she uh, died uh, on July 13th in 1870, only 23 years old. It's a, a very touching story and we hope to uh, print more about her later. Uh, 
she appeals to us, as I say, uh, uh, who are youthful, and uh, to the youth and to those who are young in heart. Uh, this beautiful girl uh, who gave her life and to help found the minims, as they are, as she called them, of our sorrowful mother, the sorrowful virgin, uh, one of the many congregations of Servite sisters. Uh, minims means what it sounds like. She wanted her a group uh, to be the littlest, the smallest in the kingdom in serving the Lord as our Mother of Sorrows did, to give themselves uh, to the Lord in their work for souls, and especially for, for young girls. So we rejoice at this uh, beautiful new saint, Saint Clelia Barbieri, founders of the Minims of the Sorrowful Virgin. Saint Clelia Barbieri, pray for us. One of the most widely read books uh, in recent times is the Poem of the Man-God by a lady who was an Italian mystic by the name of Maria Valtorta. The poem of the man-god is a real elongation, we may say, of the evangelist's account of the life of Christ. It's also, <clears throat> par force, a very interesting life of our Blessed Lady. Mary, the mother of Christ. Who is this Maria Valtorta? Well, she is a mystic, I guess you would call her, who died in 1961 at the age of 64. Our Lord made it known to her when she was still a child, that she would become similar to Christ. In 1931, he called her as a victim soul. And from 1933 on, that's a significant year. 1933 was the 
2000, or rather 1900 years after the death of Jesus. She underwent great sufferings and was bedridden for the last 27 years of her life. As a secular servant of Mary or Servite, she took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Maria wrote down all she saw and heard in the visions she declares, having received from Jesus between 1944 and 1947 concerning the Gospels. <clears throat> Her spiritual director, a Servite, local Servite priest, followed her closely throughout all this invading supernatural experience. Nearly two-thirds of her writings make up an extensive, realistic, and deeply heart-moving life of Jesus that has no equal in the mystical literature of the Catholic Church. And Jesus clearly stated he was giving these writings to provide for the church's needs in our times. Some background of the uh, book, this 5,000 page Life of Jesus was written in Italian naturally between 1944 and 1947. It is now being read by millions on all five continents. It was a number of languages, French, Spanish, German, and most recently, English. In 1947, shortly after being completed, <coughs> a typewritten copy of it in 12 volumes was handed to Pope Pius XII. A few months later, on February 26, 1948, His Holiness Pope Pius XII received in private audience, you can read about that in the Observatorio Romano, the official newspaper of the Vatican, three priests of the Order of the Servites or Servants of Mary Father Corrado Mary Berti, theologian and professor at the Marianum University, Pontifical Faculty of Theology in Rome. Father Andrea Maria Chekin, prior of the Servite International College in Rome. And Father Ramwaldo Maria Migliorini, formerly Pontifical Prefect in Africa and also spiritual director for Maria Valtorta. And Pope Pius XII declared in their presence, publish this work 
as it is. There is no need to give an opinion about its origin, whether it be extraordinary or less. Who reads it will understand. Close quote. His Holiness then added, quote, one hears of many visions and revelations. I don't mean to say that they are all real, but there are some of which it can be said that they are real. Close quote. This last sentence obviously applies to the present work, the poem of the man-god. Father Bertie, I may add here that I knew all of these men personally that are involved in this audience as a brother Servite. Father Berti then asked His Holiness if the words visions and dictations by Jesus should be eliminated from the text. The Pope answered that nothing should be eliminated. And so it happened unexpectedly exceptional way, providentially, this work by Maria Valtorta, the poem of the man-god, received its imprimatur, which is Latin for it may be printed, may be published, directly from the Pope himself, which is strictly according to the canon law of the church. That was in 1948. Years passed. The work was first published in 1956-59. From then on, whatever opposition cropped up, the number of its readers multiplied phenomenally among the church laity as well as in the religious orders, the clergy, and the hierarchy. Among them all, <clears throat> saintly people, mystics, active organizers, specialists in many fields, scientists, and what have you. <clears throat> Through their thousands of written testimonies, Pope Pius XII's prediction proved true. Yet, for all their number, weight, and force, there is little they could add to the supreme official declaration by the Sovereign Pontiff, Pius XII. Since 1972, Maria Valtortis remains rest in a chapel of the Servite cloister adjacent to the Basilica of the Most Holy Annunciation in Florence, Italy. Here are some 
testimonies from those who have read at least the first volumes in English that have come out. An archbishop from Rhode Island writes, at a retreat for the Marian movement of priests in San Marino, a brother priest gave me one volume of the Italian original. I have nearly completed the reading of the complete set, ten volumes, and ten, find it tremendously inspiring. It is impossible for me to imagine that anyone could read this tremendous work with an open mind and not be convinced that its author can be no one but the Holy Spirit of God." Close quote. From the Trappist Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, I write to tell you first of my own great satisfaction and that of my brothers here at the Abbey in reading the second volume of the poem of the man-god. It is truly a marvelous contribution to the church for our time to have labored to make this available to the English-speaking world. <clears throat> like to share with you a little more of the life of this beautiful person, Maria Valtorta. She had a very difficult childhood. She was the daughter of a father, Joseph, a Joseph who was born in Mantova. Joseph was a of the uh, Barbieri family, and uh, he was born in 1862, and he served as an uncommissioned officer in the 19th Cavalry Regiment, and her mother was. A, a, a woman by the name of Iside Fioravanzi. That's a difficult name for us in English, isn't it? Fioravanzi, born in Cremona in 1861. She was a French teacher. Maria remained an only child. She was, uh, she almost died in, uh, in, at her birth. And she had a, uh, had to have a wet nurse, a wretched mercenary as she was called later on. <clears throat> the family moved in various places because of Joseph, uh, her father, and his work. 
which brought him, uh, moved him around a good deal. So she was in various towns of Italy. Um, but uh, eventually the uh, family moved uh, to the uh, town of Viareggio, which is on the Mediterranean side of Italy, just opposite Florence. The life of Maria was uh, lifted up when she met a certain Robert, a handsome, wealthy, and cultured young man. But Maria's uh, mother wanted to terminate the budding friendly affection. For Maria, as she speaks of it, quote, to love was an intransgressible condition to be able to live. But she was to go to God after seeing how tenuous are human affections, as she said. <clears throat> Maria became a Samaritan nurse during the First World War. Uh, these nurses are uh, offered their services at the military hospital in Florence, Italy, to serve those who suffered and not to flirt or to find a husband, as she says. It was in 1920 on the feast of St. Patrick, March 17th, that she was walking along a street accompanied by her mother when she was struck in the back by a young delinquent. He came from behind with an iron bar and struck her with all his might. She tells of this in her biography. And she remained confined to bed for three months and that was the beginning of her ill health. In October of the same year, she uh, was introduced to a certain spiritual experience with the uh, a book called The Saint by Antonio Fogazzaro. <clears throat> These, uh, this uh, saint, of course, was Saint Francis. Her rapture for Saint Francis reflourished as well and was to remain an immutable characteristic of her spiritualities. She fell in love at 
this time with a man by the name of Mario. <clears throat> Again, the family moves finally to Via Reggio in September 1924. Here, Maria continued to lead a life of solitude, except for some short excursions to the seaside and pine forests and the daily shopping which allowed her to visit Jesus in the, in the Blessed Sacrament. <clears throat> she was very attracted also by the autobiography of St. Teresa of the Child Jesus. Her act of offering, she also offered herself as a victim to the merciful love. On the 28th of January, 1925, renewing that offering every day. <clears throat> From then on, her life was a life mostly of suffering. Her mission she found was to suffer, to expiate, to love. Some of the apostolate of Maria Valtorta was her giving of herself to a humble, hidden apostolate known only to God in what was known in those days as Catholic action. Uh, she was admitted to the uh, to Catholic action as a youth cultural delegate. She took uh, an active part in organizing conferences for particularly large audiences, progressively more numerous even among non-practicing Catholics. She was a very uh, brilliant uh, girl. She did very well in school. Uh, and uh, she was uh, quite well educated by various religious orders in her uh, younger life. But she was, in the meantime, maturing to offer herself entirely. Fourth uh, of January, 1933, was the last day on which Maria was able to leave her house. able to leave her bed and this began what was for her as she as we quote an intense rapture of love close quote her long and also active infirmity <clears throat> a certain beautiful person by the name of Martha de Schiotti entered the Valtorta household on May 24th, 1935. She was to become Maria's faithful companion, the listener of her writings, the one who would lovingly assist and care for her up to her death. Just one month later, after receiving this friend, Maria suffered the painful blow of her father's death in the 
June 30th. She loved him so very much. He had always fulfilled his duty with patience, sweetness, and love. As she writes. Then a, another priest friend came into her life, Father Migliorini, uh, one of the servants of Mary. And it was in 1942, he became her spiritual director for four years. And it was he who asked her to write her autobiography. <clears throat> her mother died a few months later on the 4th of October. And now there was just Maria and Martha, her dear friend. She wrote these books then, the poem of the man-god, <clears throat> continually, and on the 18th of April, 1949, Marie offered to God the sacrifice of not seeing the ecclesiastical approval of her work. She added the precious gift of her own intelligence. She began a slow process of withdrawal into a kind of psychological isolation, which started about 1956. <clears throat> and as her eyes remained clear, her intelligence gradually slipped and on the 16th of September, 1961, she was taken to the Servants of Mary, of Mary Dolorosa Haas Clinic in Pisa, where she remained for till the end of the month. And the, she came back to her home and died on the 12th of October, 1961 at 10.35 a.m., the 65th year of her life the 28th of her infirmity. The corrector of the Third Order of the Servants of Mary, Father Innocence Rovetti, assisted her, on her at her deathbed. And at the words, Depart, O Christian soul, from this world, Maria breathed her last. It seemed to be her final act of obedience. Her body was exhumed and also on the anniversary of her death, the 12th of October, 10 years later, 1971, and eventually found its way to the chapter of the, a chapter, uh, or cloister rather, of the Basilica of the Most Holy Annunciation in Florence, where it is venerated to this day. <clears throat> the poem of the man god, her major work, among other works, uh, defined in her writings as the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as it was revealed to little John, she called herself little John, uh, but uh, it, 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 is, uh, it was given another name uh, because of the uh, its similarity to a uh, a book that had already been uh, published and so uh, it came out eventually then as the poem of the man-god 
and that is the title that remains to this day. I am personally uh, very close, I feel very close to Maria Valtorta in that I lived in Via Reggio at various times in writing the uh, life of uh, the curé or the pastor of Via Reggio for many, many years, for 45 years to be exact. this is Saint Anthony Pucci. Saint Anthony Pucci, as pastor of Via Reggio, lifted up this city just as the curé of ours uh, recreated the town of ours and made it the holy place that it is to this day. And it was in the atmosphere of this holy man that she wrote. Uh, so beautifully about our Lord and produced this magnificent, monumental poem of the man-god. She also uh, died on my birthday, uh, birth date, uh, October 12th, and her body was exhumed also on that date, ten years later. Uh, So I feel very uh, close to this holy uh, secular servite and, uh, and we, are, we feel very uh, very privileged to speak to you about her. God bless you all. Oh uh. 
aching in her head in that mother's pain untold bruised derided thirst defiled she Want of love, touch my spirit from above. Make my heart with yours accord. Make me feel as thou hast felt, make my soul to glow and melt with the Let me share thy 
Thank you.